Thank you for listening to a Quiet Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. The sermon title this morning is The Cross of Christ and the Love of God. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need, uh, we need your wisdom, we need direction, we need eyes to see, ears to hear, and we just want you to do a work this morning. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to do that. I pray that your word would be multiplied this morning. I pray that uh, in everything that's said and done this morning, that you would be honored. And Lord, it's just such a joy to gather in your name as your people to worship and to receive from you. Thank you that you've not left us in the dark. Thank you that you are speaking, God, that you have spoken and that you have given us access to your word. And so we can come this morning and we can all hear the exact same things from you. And Holy Spirit, we're trusting that you're going to apply those exact same things that we hear from you in unique ways. So I pray for each person here this morning that you would give us what we need. And I pray if anybody walked in here this morning feeling like that they are unloved or that somehow or another they are being overlooked by you, Seems like everybody else is short of God's love for them. What, what's going on in my life? It just doesn't look like you're there. God, I pray that they would experience this morning and be reminded this morning of your faithfulness and your love for them right now. And so, Holy Spirit, lead us this morning. I trust that you're going to do that. I need wisdom. I need help. Please grant it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. There are several reasons that people doubt God's love. Several reasons that Christians doubt God's love. And then here in a minute when I give my list, I'm going to ask you to give your list if you have any more besides this. Number one, people doubt God's love because of their feelings. Christians doubt God's love because of their feelings. Meaning, I'm having a hard day today. It doesn't feel like God loves me today. Therefore, God must not love me. Has anybody ever felt before that God had been overlooking you or that God did not love you in this very moment? Anybody? Okay. Your feelings just didn't line up with what the scriptures say. It just doesn't feel true. I don't feel like God loves me right now. In our world, they value feelings over reason and opinions over facts. And that bleeds into the Christian life where we we begin to value feelings over, and feelings do matter, by the way, but we begin to value feelings over facts or opinions over the truth. And so our feelings lead us away from some very central things that we say we believe. God loves me. But when I feel differently, I begin to question it. Does he? Right now, does he really? I mean, yesterday I thought that. I hope I'll think that tomorrow, but I don't know about right now. So feelings. Number two, circumstances. My circumstances are making me question God's love for me. We live in a soft society that lives and worships Ease. We want comfort, we want convenience, we, we want microwave, we want everything right now. And then if I don't get things I want right now, my circumstances seem to be telling me that God does not love me. If spiritual growth is slow and the circumstances that are frustrating me happen to be my spiritual growth, I get frustrated and think, does God really love me? Does God really love me? circumstances. They're not going my way. So when things don't go our way, the thing that bubbles up in our mind, what the enemy whispers, the flesh holds on to and thinks, maybe God is angry with me. Maybe he's not happy with me. Maybe he's absent. 
The third reason we doubt God's love is community. Who are you surrounding yourself with? We know that we have to, to be faithful to God's word, be friends with and associate with non-believers, but often the believers in our life, even believers in our life, we have to be careful that we're not gathering around and it's not just a cesspool of gossip or a cesspool of sinful negativity or pessimism. You know, there are optimistic types who can sin in their optimism because they're always optimistic in the sense that they're never actually seeing or viewing reality. They're just walking through life kind of skipping. And this is kind of what I fall into often is I kind of skip and I'm oblivious to everything going around me. Everything could be on fire and I'm like, hey, your life's great, isn't it? As people are weeping around me. And then for others, pessimism rules the day. And you see everything pessimistic. And optimistic people have a tendency to shame people who actually feel something other than joy. Pessimistic people have a way of bringing happy people down and Eeyores around. So both of us have to be self-aware. Okay, We all have to be self-aware of the areas that in our life that we struggle or the areas that we need help in. And who we surround ourselves with really, really matters. And so if you're around a community of people that remind you of God's love and sovereignty, that's a good thing. But if you're around a people or in a community of people that tell you that it's all about you and your love and your sovereignty or your independence, things will go badly. If you're in a community that's all about you, all about self-love, all about focus on you, 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 I promise you when things aren't going your way, you're going to be doubting God's love because after all, God should be me-centered as well. The fourth reason that we doubt God's love is the enemy in our flesh. So the enemy knows, the enemy knows this, that the person who feels unloved is a person who is in a desperate state. Because usually they go together. If you feel unloved, typically what happens is you're going to feel very, very desperate. You're going to be very, very sorrowful. And since God has been kind to us and he has poured out his love on us through the Holy Spirit, it's foundational for the enemy to attack foundational truths about the Christian. It's, it's foundational for the enemy to come and shoot arrows in the place that's so central to us, the, the heart, the heart itself, for us to begin to doubt God's love. And the flesh also rises up and agrees with the enemy when the arrows are shot. And so what do we do? Where do we go when we feel unloved? And it's not just ladies who feel unloved. Men feel unloved as well. This isn't just a, a, a gender-specific struggle. Where do we go? What do we do? When we're in a place of doubt, when we're in a place that feels like shifting sand at a feelings level, can we look somewhere? Is there an anchor like we just sang about? Is there a ballast? Is there a lighthouse? Is there a foundation that's unmovable, unshakable, that we can scream to our heart when our heart is doubting to go look at, to go to, to run to, to cling on to? Where can we go? What is the foundation? Is there a fixed point, a lighthouse to bring us home? At any given moment in our life, here's the truth. We have a stable place to look. We have solid ground to stand on. We have experience of the love of God that we can refer to. And we can tether our hearts and our very lives, our emotional life, spiritual life, physical lives, to the very thing that we're looking at today. We have a place to go. We don't need to complain or whine and say, God, you're not speaking to me or reminding me of your love. He he is in this moment, right now, in this day. And if we can remember this day, remember this day. Remember the content of this passage here today. 
By the grace of God, this can be a day we can remember the rest of our lives. The next time that we are in a place of doubt, we can go back to that foundation. We can take our eyes and fix it on another place besides our feelings, our circumstances, our community, whatever it may be. The enemy, the flesh. By grace, I want us to remember this text and this sermon. Hopefully, literally, I hope we remember it the rest of our lives. So where do we go? Where do we turn? Where do we look? Romans chapter 6, right, chapter 5, excuse me, verses 6 through 11. We've been walking through the book of Romans, and we have now passed the doctrine of justification. Now that we have been justified by God, the gavel of the Supreme Court of all the universe has come down and declared us forgiven and righteous. What now? Now that we know that God is not angry with us, what are the things that we need to know to grow in our spiritual life and walk? Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have, been we have now received reconciliation. Verse 6. This work of God in our lives is not based, based on our strength. And this is a really, really good thing. It's a good thing to remember before we were saved, and it's a good thing to remember after we're saved, that God's work in our life is not based on our strength. Aren't you thankful for that? There are times we feel bulletproof. And there, were, there are times that we feel so weak. And if our salvation today is based on one of those two circumstances, me feeling bulletproof or me feeling weak, you will never have a strong place to stand. But if God is doing something in your life, regardless of your position, whether you're weak or strong, if God's doing something, then there's hope. And that's what we're told in chapter 5, verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God's power is not predicated upon human strength. God's power is not predicated upon human strength. The text says that at the right time, Christ came to die. And the right time for him to come for us is not when we were strong and when we were righteous. The right time for Christ to come for you was while you were still weak. While you were weak, Christ came to die. While we were ungodly, God knows what he's doing, and the right time for Jesus to come and rescue sinners was not waiting for sinners to clean themselves up. And so often, even we hear this all the time, so often we think this, that for me to get God's attention, i got to do some stuff first. And for me to get, if everybody else is going to be saved out there, they're going to have to take a few steps. After all, God helps those who help themselves, and if they'll take a few steps forward, then God will kind of meet them in the middle and kind of reward their, their walking and their obedience and their choices. But the thing we're called to remember is at the right time when we were weak and ungodly, God did not wait for us to come strong and godly. He came for us. He knows what he's doing. We didn't clean ourselves up. We didn't prepare ourselves or get ready. 
and what we needed to be reminded of regularly and what the church in Rome needed to be reminded of regularly is that that's the work of Christ. The work of Christ is not based on a response from God based on human readiness or choices. God did not wait for you. We need to be reminded of this. God didn't wait for you. We didn't get his attention. God acted and we, by grace, responded to him. We get this out of order. God did something at the right time. And this idea, this idea we see right here, it destroys any idea out there in the world, in all religions, of, of a karma-based system of living. And a karma-based system of living, we know this, is that what kind of what goes around comes around. And this weasels its way into religious systems and worldview. In fact, some, for some Christians even, our idea is if I scratch God's back, God will scratch my back. Or if I will give my life for him, he will come and do some things for me. And this is radically counterintuitive to that idea. It destroys it. It destroys the idea of synergism. Synergism is this doctrine about salvation that says that for you to be saved, for you to be a Christian, it requires God's work and your work. And if you guys will be synergized, God and you, you can be saved. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not just that there's options to believe that or this. The Bible teaches clearly that God didn't wait for you to do a single thing to come for you. Not a single thing. While we were weak and ungodly, God did something. It is monergistic, a singular act of God to save sinners. Not a double action, God does his part, we do, his, we do our part. This is God coming to seek and to save that which is lost. We were lost, God wasn't. We need to be reminded of that, it destroys. This obliterates the idea that we must have first reached out to God, because God came, sent Jesus to come, not while we were reaching out to him, but while we were weak and ungodly. When we didn't have the strength to raise an arm. When we didn't have a past to be able to say, look, I'm living more righteous than I was before. When I was at my worst, when I was ungodly, Jesus came for me. And he came for you. And we need to, brothers and sisters... Be reminded that it was not sinners who cried out for God to come or to send Jesus to come, but it was God who sent Jesus for sinners. Sinners didn't plead with God, please send us a rescuer. Sinners killed the rescuer. Jesus came for us. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now let's think through the rationale of this, the rationale of God and why it's so otherworldly. It's so much better than anything that we could conceive. Romans 5.8 tells us, or 5.7, as we kind of think through this, tells us that one would scarcely die for a righteous person. Perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die. If we were to come up with a situation that would make more sense, kind of be understandable a little bit, that kind of like fit the way our mind works, and this is where theology can go wrong, okay? Verse 5, verse 6 is telling us, okay, one could imagine a scenario where somebody would die for a good person. Perhaps for a good person, someone would dare to die. Or a righteous person. And that would make sense. After all, look at what they're doing. Look how they're living their life. Look how much they love other people. In fact, you might find somebody out there that would say, you know what, that person's living better than me. I'd gladly lay my life down for them. A righteous person 
somebody would dare to die, perhaps, would give their life to let somebody else live. And in the scenario of the atonement, the way we get our mind all screwed up and the way the enemy wants us to think and our flesh wants us to think is in this scenario. That we did somehow present ourselves in a way that would be rational. That, that God, this is why God came. Because I was living righteous. This is how God came. Because I was living in a godly way. And it was worth it for him. It's, show, it's, it's, telling, it's showing me, therefore, if God did something for me, it's showing me the things that I have done for him. It makes sense. Perhaps somebody would do that. And we would sit back and say, you know, that kind of does make sense. If, if God would do that, then maybe it's because they were good or deserving. Just like in this life, I could think that I wouldn't give my life for a scoundrel. I wouldn't give, somebody, give my life for somebody that hurt my family, but I would give my life for my son. Or I would give my life for my friends. I can, make, I can understand that, but this is not in the realm of reality that we're talking about here because we can kind of make sense of this, but here's what's so nonsensical in our minds. And if we don't ever get the nonsense of this, we don't ever get the supernatural sense of this. If we don't ever get the natural nonsense of what we're going to read here right now, then we can never stand in awe of the supernatural reality of the cross. Because here's what God did for you at the right time, if you know him. But God, but God, in verse 8, shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we just blow through verses that we're familiar with all the time. And we miss what's there. Because we just don't stand and look and ask, God, help me to see this. And this statement is absolutely astounding. There is so much treasure for you in this verse. So much. Contrast something that perhaps would make sense with this. Contrast Somebody may be dying for a righteous person with the love of God. Let's, let's make a contrast here. What is God's love like? God shows his love for us. And notice how God shows his love for us. It's a present tense love. Let me just ask you this. When did Jesus die for you? Was it like today or was it 2,000 years ago? Not a trick question. 2,000 years ago. Thank you, Kathy. Winner. 2,000 years ago. Okay, Jesus, that's past. It's a past event. But how does God show his love for us today? Well, the text, this is crucial, guys. Absolutely crucial. God shows present tense right now. Here's how God shows his love for us. You, right now. This is the anchor. This is the ballast. This is the lighthouse. This is the firm foundation. This is the place for weary souls to run. This is the place for confused heart to find a place to anchor to, to tether to, to run to, to hold on to. The place where we see Jesus holding on to us. His firm and fixed love for you. He shows, God shows his love for you that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. Shows, not showed, not a past event, a present reality, even though it was a past 
Experience, present tense. God shows his love for you. Right now, God is showing you at 1037, Sunday, the 11th of August, God is showing his love to you no matter what you walked in here this morning feeling like, no matter what circumstances you're facing. No matter what difficulty or community of people that are around you saying otherwise, no matter what the enemy shoots your way, no matter what your flesh is telling you, they're all lies if they're not telling you God loves you. Because this morning God is showing you his love through the cross of Christ. Right now, present and active, power on display, God absolutely loves you. And he has showed his love for you and he's showing his love for you that while you were yet a sinner... God sent Jesus to die for you. Wasn't while you were doing anything other than sin. Presently, this is our anchor. This is our solid ground. The answer to the cries of the heart. God, where are you? Where do we go when we feel unloved? Into greater and greater despair and pessimism? Into a community of people will say, yeah, yeah, that's really tough. Or by God's grace, encourage one another, encourage our own hearts, preach to ourselves the good news and say, no, the cross happened. And that's for me right now. And God is declaring to me his love right now. We feel unloved, run to the cross of Christ and experience his love afresh and anew. Why? Because when we were at our worst, our worst, in the... Worst place you can imagine. Worse than you are right now. When you were in the deepest gutter of your entire life. Doing the worst things you could possibly be doing. When you deserved it the least. It didn't cause God to run away from you. It's amazing. Jesus is attracted. He, he runs towards sinners. Not those who claim to be the righteous. I'm strong. Look at me, what I'm doing. Even if it's never verbalized, it's only internalized. Jesus came not for the well, but for the sick. He came for those who knew I messed up. I'm not well. I'm not strong. I'm weak. When we didn't deserve it. When we deserve to pay for our own sins while we were sinners, Christ died for us. There it is. There it is. There it is. That, that, that is how God shows He loves you. It's how He shows. It's God's central love language you might cry out, but that's not the way I want to be loved. I want Him to show me His love in other ways. I want Him to answer this prayer. Or this prayer, or make this circumstance get better, or provide me with this thing. Well, I'm sorry, you don't get to dictate the love language of God. And we don't get to stomp and say, God, if you really love me, you would show me in another way. And demand from him as if the cross was not enough of a display of his glorious love. This is the greatest love imaginable. All other lesser loves pale in comparison. All other lesser words, all other gifts that God could give to you and that he does shower upon us daily. Don't run to them to look and affirm his love for you because there's going to be seasons where those good gifts that the Heavenly Father gives, there's going to be seasons where it feels like they're not coming anymore. 
And there's going to be times to be tempted to say, well, because he was giving me these gifts and now he's not giving me these gifts, maybe he doesn't love me as much anymore. And your heart and the enemy is going to say, yeah, he doesn't. I want you to remember for the rest of your life, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, for the rest of your life, visitors who are here, all of our people, children who are here, I want you to know the cross of Christ, what God says. He says that this is how he shows his mighty love for us, through the cross. Jesus died for sinners before they were changed. Jesus did this. This is the greatest love. God loved you when you were unlovable, when we were a rebel, when we looked like a Lord of the Rings orc spiritually. Jesus said, there's my wife. She's mine. If that's true, then there are pretty staggering consequences, as we stated last week. And in some ways, we're still in this theme, the staggering consequences of justification. If these things are true, if this is where God is showing his love, how does that affect us? What does that say about our present life today, right now? How does this change the way I live? How does it change my outlook on the future? How does it help me when circumstances and trials and all these things are going on? It changes everything. And let me show you why. Look at verse 9 and 10. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood. Since that's a, that's a fact. It's established. You have been justified. Have been you're in right standing with God. You're not waiting to find out if you're going to be in right standing with God. Right now, you're in right standing with God. If you have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. So if it's true that we have been justified by His blood and that Christ died for us, then, then what are the, some more consequences? Notice that Jesus' blood was effective. This is kind of a sidebar note, but we were justified by his blood, not by our choices. We were justified by the spilling of his blood. It was effective for what it was intended for and who it was intended for. Jesus' blood came out with names on it. And if you're in Christ... The reason you're in Christ is because he bled names. He died in your place. And if he died in your place, one day or another, you will be saved. You will not experience the wrath of God. That's our hope is that Jesus actually died for people. Not that he ethereally died for the whole world in the same general way. Although Jesus did die for the whole world in a general way. Specifically, he died for names. For his bride. For the church. You. And the reason that you are a believer is because Jesus loved you first. We love him. Why do we love him? Because here's the reason you and I love him. Because he first loved us. That's why. His love is not impotent. It's powerful. The love of God. He loved us first. Therefore, because of that, we love him. It's the great cause of our love for him. And so the, follow, the, the thought, the train of thought is, if we've been justified by his blood, then something much more is going to happen. Then something more, much more. So now that that's true, there's something true about our present life. We will be saved from his wrath, and 
We shall be saved by his life. So let's consider these two things. Number one, we're saved from his wrath. If we've been justified by his blood, then this is true. Nothing that comes our way is because of God's wrath. If you're a believer in Christ, nothing in your life, no circumstance, no difficulty, no disease, no anything can't, comes our way because of God's wrath. None of them. Nothing comes our way because of God's wrath. Because we are saved from his wrath. That's what the text says. If we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's present, future tense realities. We shall be. If we have been, we shall be. And as surely as we have been justified, we will surely be saved from his wrath. We will not experience the wrath of God. Everything that comes our way in this life, therefore, isn't the wrath of God. It isn't a sign of his absence. Anything that comes your way, hear me say this, is wrapped and baptized in God's love for you. There is nothing that comes your way that is void of God's love for you. Nothing. The enemy comes and tries to destroy the choices we make that are even sinful. God has a way in his supernatural, powerful sovereignty to bring... There's nothing that comes our way that isn't somehow for our good. And you may say, how could that possibly be for my good? I don't know, but the Bible says nothing that comes our way is from the wrath of God. And that everything that comes our way, Romans 8.28, is for our good. Everything, anything, nothing that comes your way is a sign of God's anger toward you. And somehow, in it, in whatever comes your way, somehow there are treasures of the love of God there because it's not God's wrath. It's not His anger. God's love is upon us, not His wrath. And the interpretation of our life and uh, the events and of our life have to be interpreted through the cross of Christ. The interpretation of our lives and the events in it have to be interpreted through the lenses of the cross. And if you don't interpret the happenings of our life through the lenses of the cross, we're going to face life and face difficulty and suffering and per persecution, and we may even die for our faith. Who knows the way things are going? And by the grace of God, if it comes to that, I pray that you'll die with me, Amen. that we won't cower and run and retreat. But that the word of God would increase, as Revelation says, through the blood of the martyrs. But nothing comes our way that's disconnected or dislodged from the love of God and that is attached to the wrath of God. And if we don't know that, we'll interpret things all wrongly. And we'll think that my circumstances are not good, therefore God is angry with me. He doesn't love me. When the absolute opposite is the truth. My circumstances are bad, but I know that God loves me. Things are hard, but here's one thing I know for certain. No matter how hard it gets, I know that God loves me. I know that I am His and He is mine. I know that He is my Heavenly Father. I know that any disciplinary action that comes down from His hand is not in anger, but it's in tender love. I know that no matter where I am, or what I'm doing, or what sorrow I'm going through, or what joy I'm experiencing, God loves me. And God's wrath is not upon me. We're saved from his wrath. It's a distinct privilege from the non-Christian. Because with the non-Christian, God is angry with them. And his wrath is upon them. It doesn't mean he does not love them. God can do more things at once than we can. 
the privilege of knowing that God's wrath is not upon us is only the privilege of the redeemed. And if you don't know Jesus here this morning, if you've not been born again, you cannot say in the same way as a believer that God loves you. Not in the same way. He loves you, absolutely. He loves you. He loves you and sent Jesus to show you how much He loves you. But you cannot say with the Christian that God's wrath is removed from you. And the Christian can boldly say by the very words of God, God's wrath is removed from me as far as the east is from the west, and it's not coming for me. And friends, if you don't know God this morning, if you don't know Jesus, I want that for you. I want you to repent of your sins in your mind to say, God, I'm sorry for living my life the way I want to live my life, for doing things the way I want to do things, for not repenting of my sin. I'm sorry for loving my word and my thoughts more than your word and your thoughts. And I want you to trust in Jesus this morning. And if by the grace of God you do that, you can walk out of these doors assured, absolutely assured that God's wrath is away from you because of what Jesus did for you. If that's true, this wrath is removed from you, but also much more in verse 9, shall we be saved from him for the wrath of God? Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, another much more statement, now that we have been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now let's talk about assurance. This is so good. It can get you giddy inside. It's just so good. Much more. If these things are true, if Jesus showed his love for you, proved, God's proved his love for you, that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. And if we've been justified by his blood, therefore, much more, you'll be saved by his, Jesus' very life. Jesus' life is the reason that you were saved. And Jesus' life is the reason you will be saved tomorrow. Your life is not the reason you are saved. <laughs> Your life is not the reason you are saved. If you've been justified, the reason you're saved today, right now, is because much more shall we be saved by His life. Why are you saved? By your strength and endurance? Or by Jesus' strength and endurance? Did Jesus live a perfect life, obeying His Heavenly Father every moment, even to the point of death? And beloved, that's what you're counted as. You're counted as a person who will live your, to your last breath. You're counted as one till, till the very death. No matter how difficult, no matter how hard, you're counted as one who will live to the glory of your heavenly Father for every moment the rest of your life. You are saved by his life. You are not saved by your future life. You are saved by Jesus' past life. And where is Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of the Father. Where shall you be? At the right hand of the Father. Friends, the assurance of salvation, this is so crucial. And only Christianity has this. Only Christianity has this. And, and when we think about, why am I a Christian? How do I know I'm going to be a Christian tomorrow and the next day? Well, because Jesus reigns. Because Jesus died for me. Because he loves me. And I know my hope for tomorrow isn't in me. My hope for tomorrow is in him. I shall be saved by his life. This is why. And I, I want to use biblical language here. I don't like the language once saved, always saved. Okay? I just don't like that. Because it gives the, it gives the impression that, that you can pray a prayer and call it being saved. And then live the way you want to live the rest of your life. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches if you're born again, you're a new creature. 
The old is gone, the new has come. It doesn't happen through natural choices or decisions. It's a supernatural reality. It's like getting hit with a truck. As Paul Washer said, you can't get hit with a truck and stay the same. If you go outside and get hit by a truck, you're going to be physically altered a little bit. And Jesus is this holy truck. And if you get ran over by him, you're going to be changed. You can't stay the same. You just can't. But if you're in Christ, here's what I want you to hear me say. You're saved by his life. And friends, his life is immutable. It's unchangeable. It was perfect. He never sinned. And we can hang the hat of our salvation, of my assurance, of my future hope. We don't have to fear, am I going to abandon him one day? Am I going to run away from him one day? If you're in Christ, your salvation is in the life of Christ, not in your life. That's why your eternity is secure. Because you're not saved by your life. You're saved by his life. The king is alive. All hail the king. Right, Leto? I love it. It's like Leto, I can see, he, he does this hand up, and I always think of Hunger Games, you know, when he's uh, like, all hail the king. You know, think about Jesus. Oh, man. We are assured of our salvation right now. As surely as we can say God loves me, as surely I can say that I will be saved by his life. I have been saved, and I will be saved, because it's not based on me. It's based on his grace. Our salvation is based on the life of another. And we are assured of it. You have a sure and steady anchor. And it will never be removed. So important to sing truth. Now if we get all this, this otherworldly, alien, crazy talk, if you're thinking in natural lenses, if you don't have spiritual eyes to see, this is crazy talk. You don't tell people they're assured of their salvation before they're, before they're dead. Because they have to have motivation. They have to... Earn it. they got to want it for when they're dead. You don't tell them this otherworldly nonsense. See, the grace of God is so counterintuitive to the way that we think we're, we, you know, the world has changed. If you really want to change people, tell them that it's up to them the rest of their life, and then they'll get to work and, and work hard and, and, and you know, start sweating and get out there and get into work. And, and Christian growth is totally different. It's totally different. It's not based in earning. It's based in gratitude. And if these things, we see them with eyes wide open, and the Holy Spirit opens our eyelids, spiritual eyelids, and just brings them open. And if the Holy Spirit takes that and brings that down into our heart, and if finally the grace of God just doesn't go in one ear and out the other with a gentle nod, yep, that's true, preacher. If it finally grabs a hold of your heart, explosions of gratitude, just joy, and I want to obey Him, and I want to follow Him all the days of my life, rejoicing, God, thank you that my salvation tomorrow isn't based on my life, but it's based on the life of Jesus. Thank you that 10 years from now, my, my soul is secure. Thank you that a billion years from now, I know where I'm going to be because I'm saved by his life. Thank you that when I'm struggling, when I feel like my knuckles are bleeding, my teeth are shattered because I've been clenching them so hard, I've been trying so hard and wanting to obey and struggling in my sanctification yet again. I know that I'm not saved by that. I'm saved by Jesus. When we get that, joy, hope rises. When we're happy, when we're skipping along and life is great, we can say, Jesus, you're even better than this moment. I don't need to feel sorry about being happy. You should be happy. And if you're happy, take that happiness and realize that's a shadow of the happiness I'm going to experience for all eternity. 
As good as this moment is, Jesus is even better. God, thank you for this moment. Thank you that it's just a glimpse of eternity. And so all these things, they're true. Then look at this, verse 11. More than that, we also, here it is, rejoice. Joy. And the dichotomy in the scripture when people say, well, happiness and joy, it's a different thing. I get what people are saying, but not biblically. Happy and joy in, in the Bible are the exact same thing. And if you get these things by the grace of God, we also rejoice in God. How do we rejoice in God? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, our salvation should produce in us great thoughts about God, not great thoughts about ourselves. It should produce doxology, worship. Doxology, worship, glor glorify God. It should produce Honoring and glorifying God. When we think about what God has done for me, that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me, I shouldn't think immediately, wow, I'm awesome. We should immediately be thinking, oh my goodness, Jesus is really, really wonderful. He is really awesome. He is the one I stand in awe of. It was not God standing in awe of me. It's now me standing in awe of God. It should free us from great and marvelous thoughts about us. It shouldn't lead us to thinking terrible thoughts about ourselves. We should immediately, just not being assessed with ourselves, we should be just thinking about God. God, you're amazing that you would save me. You're awesome that you would save me. That you would love me like that. When I was unlovable, when I was unlovely, you counted me as lovely and loved me as if I was lovable. You're wonderful. Our salvation should produce worship of God. That's God's intention for saving you, making you a worshiper, that you would be a rejoicer. You know the best thing in the world for you is to rejoice and worship and honor God? Have you ever had moments in worship where you're just singing or responding to God in praise or, or moments where you, just like these grace moments, we mentioned it last week, but you have these moments where you just explode with joy inside of you. You're just like, yes, God is good. Or you're singing to him or there's a great line or you're reading a book and there's just... Joy, and you're just rejoicing, God, I thank you. It's a one-to-one. -one. When you're doing that, you're happy. You're thankful. And that's God's intention in saving you, is to make you an eternal, thankful person, an eternal worshiper, an eternal person with joy, with happiness. And this is the recipe. Grace to joy. When you know you're saved by his life and not yours, joy, happiness. Think about such things. Think about it. When you hear somebody say, boy, the cross, and it just sounds so right. The cross just shows you how worthy you are. I put this on the internet this week. It was kind of fun. Throw up after hearing something like that. Gag a little bit and say, brother, sister, I, that's, that's kind. I think, I'm glad you're thinking about the cross a little bit, but you're totally mistaken. Because the cross shows us how glorious and worthy Jesus is. The cross shows me how gross my sin was. And it shows me how astounding God's love is. The self-help world wants you to think otherwise. It wants to strip the cross of its power and tell you the cross is about you. And the cross is for you, but it's not about you. People who think the cross was about them can't rejoice. 
they just become greater and greater narcissists. Look how great I am, that God would do this for me. I'm awesome. And I don't want you to be like that. There's no joy there with that version of the cross. But if we see the grace of God, if we see this otherworldly, wonderful, glorious good news, and when we hear that, and when we understand that, no, it's Jesus that's worthy, it's Him, and by His life I'm saved, and I know I'm certain of God's love for me right now, no matter what's going on around me, you're a, you are a bulletproof person. If you're certain God loves me right now, no matter what comes your way, if you're certain in that moment, the darkest hour that may be coming your way, the most difficult circumstance, if you're certain God loves me, you are bulletproof. God loves me. This wrath's not on me. He's for me. If you go out and have a great, you go win the lottery. And you get some amazing thing that happens to you. You know, hey, that's great, and you can celebrate it rightly because you're not based on circumstances telling you about God's love. You're able to finally experience blessing in the rightest sort of way. Seeing it as a gift from God, but not as a primary demonstration of His love for us. We're not hanging our lives on things going well for us just to wait and know, does God really love me? Maybe He'll give me blessings to show it. And when you know He doesn't have to show me anything more, when He does... You can simply thank Him for it. God, thank You. Thank You for being so kind to give me that or bless me with that or give me the money that I needed or give me that job that I needed or help me or bring healing to my body in this way or to do something. Because You didn't have to do anything else. I'm not dependent upon anything for You, to, for me to know that You love me. But I thank You that You did that anyways because that's over and above. Thank You. God is so kind. And so when we think about things, when we think about what God has done, gratitude, this is the key to the Christian life, Christian growth, all of this, and where we're going the next you know, 30, 50, 80 weeks, I don't know, is that when you know God's love and His grace for you, when you know your salvation is secure, gratitude, that's the path to the Christian life. Gratitude is to praise is the path to life in the full. Gratitude to praise is the path to life in the full. Gratitude to praise. Gratitude to to praise. When you're weary, when things are hard, when you're complaining to God again, and even this morning as you hear me ranting and raving and hooping and hollering and dancing all over the stage here, even when you hear these things and explosions of enjoy, of gratitude, don't rise up out of you. Even when you sit here unmoved and you're a child of God, you're still saved by Jesus' life and not your own. And you may say, well, I just don't feel the things that other people are feeling. And when they sing, they're really singing. And when they think about God's grace, the tears flow, but not for me. If you're a Christian, God's grace and your salvation is not predicated upon tears flowing or feeling some certain way this morning. And you say, I just can't shake this dark darkness in my soul. God still loves you. He doesn't love you if you'll have joy in Him. Or if you'll just shake that and be like everybody else. Or if you'll get your life together like every other Christian has their life together. 
Or if their kids will obey like my kids will obey like their kids. Or my grandkids will get in line like their grandkids get in line. Or they do this or that. Even if you don't feel like that. I feel no joy. I feel unloved. I feel abandoned. Well, Jesus is stronger than all that. He's bigger than all that. He's bigger than you. And you feel like, I just, I, it's, I'm held by a small tether. No, you're not. You're held by the mighty arm of God. And he has you right now. He's stronger than our feelings. He's near. You are loved. He will never abandon you. Just all the more reasons to praise him. Just all the more reasons to move from gratitude to praise, joy, and life in the full. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are so kind. I thank you for your life, that your life was sufficient to save. It was not deficient in needing of my uh, work to kind of come and, and make up for the things lacking in Jesus. Jesus, your work was sufficient, not deficient. Help us to stand in awe. God, for those who skipped in here happy, I pray that they would walk out of here happier. I pray for those who walked in here sorrowful that they would walk out of here skipping. Or at least assured, just for a moment, I know God loves me. They would know that they would turn their eyes to the cross and cry. They would see that this is how God shows his love for me today. Morning. This is how God's showing his love for me. He's not withholding. He is not being stingy. He is a heavenly father who knows how to give me what I need. And right now, I just needed to know that God loves me. And right now, this morning, if that's it, if that's all we get, help us to all know and be fixed on the fact that God loves me. Holy Spirit, help us as we sing. It's in Jesus' name I pray.